The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. This is our show about the changing nature of work. And of course, how that work is changing all of us. In June of 2020, in the weeks after George Floyd was murdered by police in Minneapolis, Aurora James was already a successful fashion designer. She had already launched the shoe brand that put her on the map, Brother Veli's. And so when a major retailer, one based in Minneapolis, no less, was trying to figure out how to meet the moment, well, someone called Aurora. So I said to her, you know, as a major retailer, like Black people are almost 15% of the population, they should commit 15% of their shelf space to Black-owned businesses right now and actually spend 15% of their budget acquiring products from Black-owned businesses to sell to their customers. And she was like, girl, no one's going to do that. Aurora shared the idea on Instagram. Her post led to a movement one that she stoked with leadership and with labor. And now, three years later, that 15% pledge has led to a reallocation of $10 billion in revenue. That movement is still growing. So how does the movement get started these days? That's the question I really want to explore today. How does it take off and grow and become meaningful? Aurora recently wrote about this experience in her memoir, Wildflower. I love this book because Aurora's story is unexpected. She was a person of limited resources with tough family relationships. She dropped out of high school and then later dropped out of college. She forged a career for herself that started with a table at a street fair. We can all learn something from her persistence and her grace. Here's Aurora. For me, when I started actually talking to people, they would sometimes say these like offhanded remarks that were really, it wasn't meant to be mean or anything like that, but there was this assumption that I must have come from generational wealth or I must have, you know, had a mother that worked in the industry or something, right? Like that was the only way that anyone could fathom that I would be a woman having this level of success, especially a woman of color, right? And I think that that was really sad. Not so much for myself, because it's like, whatever, right? I can live with people having sort of the wrong assumptions about me, but but for everyone else that kind of looked like me or who was struggling in any way, because there's an othering that was sort of happening. And that didn't feel progressive, right? Because we hear all these founder stories all the time and everyone's like breaking glass ceilings and doing the damn thing and is like pregnant on the cover of a business publication. And it's like, that all seems like really amazing (laughs) was not my story though, right? Right. Um, And so I think for me, being able to tell my own story in my own words um, felt really powerful just in the sense that I was hoping that it would allow other women the opportunity to be like, yeah, here I am, perfectly flawed, with the complete wrong resume to do what I'm doing right now. Um, which is so key, right? As if there were a resume that would be the resume for success. Right. How did you get into fashion? 
So my mom was adopted at birth <laughs> and she didn't know what her uh, like ancestral background was. She's white presenting and for all intents and purposes is a white woman. And um, she was just really curious. And it, she really used fashion as a tool to learn about other cultures and learn about other places. And we would go to different museums growing up and look at different clothes from all over the world, jewelry, any kind of like artifact. And she was like, this is how women's history has largely been archived, right? through different artisans around the world who are women and and they were able to kind of preserve how they wanted to feel, what they wanted to look like and how they communicated with each other um, through fashion. And she would always tell me this Nigerian proverb that goes, until the lion has a historian, the hunter will always be the hero. I love that. And she was like, you have to seek out women and people of color's story in unexpected places because it generally isn't going to show up in the history books. You give your mom so much credit there. And in your book, you write about her with all the complicated feelings that many have about their imperfect mothers. What did your mother give you in terms of business lessons and business acumen? I mean... (laughs) <laughs> probably my, my most difficult business trait, which is that sometimes you have to put people over profit. You know, I think that you can do both. And I think that that's kind of been my mantra. Like the way that I view business is sort of this amalgamation between my mother and my grandmother, where it's like, okay, I actually believe this, the centrist kind of perspective, which is that you can do great business actually by doing some of what's best for the world. But I also think conversely, like as media and as people of influence, it's our responsibility to also talk to consumers across the country about why shopping with our values is important and and some of the critical questions that we need to be asking corporations as well to help hold them accountable. If you don't have to answer a question, you're not going to do the work always. Like we we can't fool ourselves that that companies are going to be altruistic on their own. No, that is not baked into capitalism. It, It skews the incentives and asks too much of individuals, I think. Totally. So let's talk about the origination of your fashion brand and then how you grew it. Anytime I had the opportunity to save a little bit of money, I would travel to Africa. Um, And when I was in Southern Africa, South Africa and Namibia, I fell in love with the traditional Southern African shoe called a felskin or a felly for short. We call them bellies now. And it's kind of the original uh, shoe that manifested in Southern Africa. It started off with just being leather wrapped around the foot and then it was sort of tacked and sewn together, almost like a moccasin. And then eventually it got a rubber sole and eyelids. And when British people came to Southern Africa, they fell very much in love with it um, and brought it back up to the UK and renamed it a desert boot and launched the company that you and I know today as Clark's. But the <laughs> shoe shape is actually a traditional South African shoe called a felly. And I fell in love with it and realized that all of the artisans that were making it were basically losing their jobs and going to work in other environments and and industries. And I was so disheartened by that because I just loved the shoe so dramatically. And so I sat down and I worked with them and figured out their supply chain and talked to them and learned how to vegetable dye from a group of women called the Himba. They taught me about mud and flowers and and we were dyeing leather and I made a little batch of shoes. Um, I had $3,500 at the time and, and used that to kind of make a batch of shoes. And then I brought them back to New York 
uh, like four blocks from where I'm sitting right now to something called the Hester Street Fair. And I got a stall there for $70. And that was how I accidentally launched my brand, Brother Bellies. Well, Aurora, I just want to like paint the picture here. You were in your 20s at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, I had dropped out of high school. <laughs> I say dropped out. I think my professor, my principal at the time might have said kicked out, but we agreed to disagree on this point. <laughs> and then college, like, I, you know, didn't do so well with that proposition either. So everything that I learned about shoes, I learned actually from people in Africa. So what was your vision at this point? Most people who become incredibly successful as you are, when they get going, when they launch, they're not imagining that moment far off in the future when they're winning the prizes and walking down the aisles. What did you know you were trying to do then? What I knew I was trying to do then was tell a story about something that I thought was so beautiful, this shoe, and also so uh, sad, which was like this story of how fashion had kind of appropriated this very African thing and made it this very mainstream British and American thing without involving the original artisans or makers in any way, shape or form. Like that to me is really, when we talk about cultural appropriation, that's that, right? And my grandmother and mama always growing up, it's like, you can give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. It, when we talk about, you know, this idea of philanthropy and all that, of course, like, and as someone who runs a nonprofit now, like we love a donation, like don't get me wrong. But when we talk about what it means to actually start supporting each other in a more meaningful way, it's about job creation. And so to me, and this was also at the, at the height of Tom's shoes, right? Where it's like yeah. one for one models are just like exploding out of everywhere. I remember like standing in a line like to meet Blake Mykoski from Tom's just so I could be like, hey, I just want you to know I'm making this shoe in Africa and I really think you should consider like not making your shoes in China and then like just continuing to just drop all these shoes across Africa because every time you do that, the artisans that I know like are at more risk of losing their jobs and maybe instead like you just want to like work with them to make the shoes. You know, he thought I was crazy. Yeah, this was a big aha for me, Aurora. And I confess, I I, I feel a, sh- a little sheepish to say that I learned this from listening to you. Mm. Um, but th- the one-for-one one model, surprise, is is actually like savvy marketing, but not that helpful to the local community of people who perhaps don't wear Tom's shoes, didn't need the crab from China, and would like a way to make their own economies work. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, 70% of the manufacturing in Ethiopia has been killed out by American donated clothing. Yeah. Right? So, and, 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 you know, I talk about this in the book, but it's like the NFL, for example, like they will make a batch of t shirts for both teams because they don't know which one's going to win. And then what do you do with all of that trash? You dump it in Africa under the guise of like a donation and you get a tax write off. And it's like, but really, there's, like eight t-shirts in a landfill for every one person in Africa right now. It's like they don't want our like old t-shirts. Yeah, yeah. They're drowning in it. Uh, well, listen, so you are um, in a stall in the Hester Street Fair the last we catch up with you. Mm-hmm. People buy your shoes. Mm-hmm. And then what? People buy the shoes. Uh, a, a journalist actually wrote about the shoes, which was incredible. So we started like a little fledgling, like direct to consumer business on dot com. 
Um, and every time I would sell the shoes, you know, I would take the money that I had and, and use that to buy more shoes. And sometimes I would travel to Africa. And when I would go to Africa, I would print out these postcards and I would send postcards to all of the fashion editors in, in New York. And I would say like, Hey, I would really love if you would just take some time to check out my collection when I'm back. And I didn't have money for PR or anything like that. And so that really worked. People love a postcard, you know? And, um, <laughs> and so I would just bring, you know, the shoes around to people. And then like a year after I launched, I ended up applying for something called the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund, which is Anna Wintour's big thing that she does for, for emerging designers who are American. And then I ended up winning that in 2015, the following year. I, I've heard you say that this was a year that it was at least set up to be televised. And so you learned mm -hmm. that you won when somebody like literally knocked on your apartment door, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. If someone knocked on my apartment door with like a big camera crew and it was a it was an unscripted TV show on Amazon Prime. It was their first unscripted TV show. If anyone can find copies of that, I would love to see it again because I cry through every single episode. I'm just crying. I had the worst imposter sim syndrome. This win, what does this win unlock for you? Specifically, is it an avenue to capital so you can actually build the business? Yeah, so it was a $300,000 grant, which was amazing, right? Um, because I didn't even have a credit score at the time. I didn't have a company card. I was coming from Canada. So I just only had my social security number for like a year. Um, wow. And I think for me, just also that idea that I was at, would actually have some people that I knew in fashion that I could email, let alone the fact that it was like Dion von Furstenberg and Anna Wintour, right? Like right. that was just a dream come true. And I think also because so much of it for me was actually about working with artisans around the world. And, and I had started also working with artisans in Kenya and Mexico and Italy and Haiti and Bali. And, and so I think the idea of being able to take a lot of these traditional tools and practices and bring that into the fashion conversation in a really real way and a way that wasn't happening before and talk about sustainability and talk about advocacy. And, you know, I think that really felt like a dream come true to me. We're going to take a quick break here, but stick around because when we come back, Aurora will tell us how she took her personal dream come true and she used that influence to spread economic opportunity to others. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. During the protests that occurred in the wake of George Floyd's murder, so many people began reaching out to Aurora for advice. It wasn't just that one major retailer that we talked about at the top of the episode. In the wake of George Floyd's murder in 2020, I started getting a lot of calls and texts from people who are all really well-intentioned. Some were my friends, some were just various like business relationships that I had just asking for advice, you know? Yeah. And I spent a few days like editing people's Instagram captions and like advising them on, you know, a number of different things. And then on that Saturday, someone called me on behalf of a major retailer And just said, like, hey, you know, they are based in Minneapolis. Like, people are still rioting outside. They just made a $10 million donation to the NAACP. Like, you know, like, no one seems to care. Like, what should they do? And I was like, well, you know, $10 million is, is, is nice, right? But, like, to be honest with you, Black people spend more than $10 million every day at that store. So the implication that that's somehow enough or anti-racist is sort of ridiculous. Right. And I said to her, you know, I really think that in these moments, people have to think about how they can do what they do best in service of communities that don't just happen to be underrepresented. They need to change their framing and understand that it's not just about underrepresentation. It's about historical exclusion, right? Yeah. And you know, she was like, well, what does that mean? And I was like, listen, they're a major retailer. Like black owned businesses are struggling so much right now. And I knew this from personal experience, right? Like I own a shoe brand. I, people were not buying shoes in a global pandemic and a stay at home order. Right. I, I wasn't even asking my customers to, I mean, that would have been so rude. We were also seeing that 90% of black owned businesses didn't get access to the first round of PPP money, that 44% of black owned businesses were projected to close, which was over double the national average. So I was seeing every day that the black community and the black entrepreneurs specifically was getting hit exponentially higher. Um, And so I said to her, you know, as a major retailer, like black people are almost 15% of the population, they should commit 15% of their shelf space to black owned businesses right now and actually spend 15% of their budget acquiring products from black owned businesses to sell to their customers. And she was like, girl, no one's going to do that. And I was like, well, I don't know. Like you can tell them that's what I said. And that was my idea. And, um, I think, we got off the phone pretty quickly and I really just kind of sat down and thought about that idea and what it would mean in the American economic landscape with venture capital, with big banks, like all of the ways in which these kind of tectonic shifts would take place 
for black entrepreneurs if major retailers actually started committing to doing that. And I sat down and I typed it all out furiously in like the notes section of my phone, which is where all of our brilliant ideas live. And um, total and I screenshot it and I, within that hour, posted it onto my own Instagram and just like tagged a bunch of major retailers that I thought should do it. And then what? <laughs> and then I turned my phone off because my agent immediately called me and was like, you're out of your mind. Please take that down. Um, but yeah, I, I, I did literally turn my phone off. And um, that was a Saturday. On Sunday, I turned it back on. And there was you know a bunch of people that were reaching out and saying like, hey, this is a really brilliant idea. I stayed up overnight that Sunday and I uh, built a website. So my web designer and I were able to launch a petition on Monday at noon. Um, by Tuesday, end of day, I think we had maybe almost a hundred thousand signatures. Wow. Um, and then on Wednesday I started registering it to become a nonprofit on Thursday. I was talking about it on like CNN and, um, by day 10, Sephora actually became the first major corporation to commit to the idea of the 15% pledge. As Aurora outlined in that initial call. The 15% pledge is just what it sounds like. If you visit the nonprofit's website, it's right there on the homepage. Black people make up 15% of the U.S. population. So we asked businesses to dedicate 15% of their shelf space to Black-owned brands. Sephora was just the first company to sign on. And since then, we've signed 29 of biggest companies across the country. They all sign multi-year contracts with us. And through those contractual commitments, Nordstrom is the longest, for example, it's a 10-year contract. Um, so through those contractual commitments, we're now in the process of reallocating over $10 billion of annual revenue to Black-owned businesses across this country. We've onboarded over 650 Black-owned brands onto the shelves of retailers all across the nation and um, are now one of the fastest-growing nonprofits in the country, which is, you know, pretty exciting from an Instagram post, I got to tell you. Well, and I got to say, it's using the tools that are available to us in service of mm -hmm. real change, right? Mm -hmm. um, capitalism's tools. Mm -hmm. And and there's a piece of the story I want to explore with you because I, I found it really interesting, which is, like, at some point in that process – you went to companies and introduced this idea, and the feedback that you got was, we don't really have capacity to audit that way, but, you know, we're pretty good on this. And that turned oh, yeah. out not to be true. Talk a little bit about how you figured out how to appeal to companies. Yeah, there was a, a couple things that we would hear. One is, we have no idea where we're at. Two is, where are the Black-owned businesses? Three is, we don't have enough Black customers. Four is we're already amazing. So the thing that we first did was we created this kind of anonymous volunteer task force of, of women across the country that just started doing these like external and in some cases internal audits of current uh, shelf space. And really what we saw was the vast majority of retailers were far below 1%. Most were in the 0.4% arena the highest that we saw from anyone was 3%. Um, and so I didn't even know where we were at that time. I knew that like usually it would be like uh, at a store, it would be like my brand. It would be like Off-White, you know, it would be Briogeo and that would kind of be it. Um, there was one woman that was like super engaged 
and her and I were kind of having a little bit of a discourse and, and, and she worked somewhere very fun. And, um, she was like, I have a couple friends who want to help. And so then I just posted like, Hey guys, DM this woman, if you want to help with some of this auditing, external auditing that we want to do. And she wrote me a few hours later and she's like, I have over a hundred people. And the next day she was like, we have over 200 people. We have several live documents and and I remember looking at some of these live documents and it's honestly going to make me choke up right now because just seeing like these women who are just in there, like, you know, just like trying to do, and it was a pandemic, you know, we were all locked at home and I think we were just so fucking desperate to feel anything, to make a difference, to work on any kind of positive change right now, because people were dying all around us. Like, the country that we knew was also felt like it was dying in some ways around us. And the idea that you could actually do something that felt tangible, and also, I have to tell you, what we were all so desperately clinging to, whether it was us or whether it was the corporation, was some way to count a feeling, right? And I think, to your question about, like, how did a lot of these conversations work? It was like, there is so much pain in this country and with this problem right now. Here's a way that we can actually attach a metric to it and where we can work towards something that's a real goal that'll make a real difference without having to sit around in a boardroom and talk about feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And as much as I'm your girl to sit around and talk about feelings, I also understand that from a corporate perspective, they're not trying to do that. Like if they can't track it, they can't do it. And I think that that was part of the genius of the pledge. And then also just the fact that I was certain and I had no um, data to back it up at the time, but I was absolutely certain that if anyone figured out how to get this right, it would be a phenomenal business opportunity. Yeah. And that they were actually missing out on revenue by not having diverse shelves. Right. And here we are almost three years later, soon to be three yep. years later. Yeah. Where does a 15% pledge stand? So I like to tell this story about the Sephora Accelerator. So after Sephora took the pledge, they uh, pivoted an existing accelerator program that they had and they focused on black women. And so um, we kind of had this first batch of black female founders that went through the program and um, they were so amazing. There was one woman, Danessa Myricks, who had had a business for a long time. She had like no huge retailers like a Sephora or anything, but she was, we always say like your makeup artist's favorite makeup artist. She went through that program. She got onto the shelves, just absolutely blew expectations out of the water, sold like what they thought she was going to do in three months in like the first three days. Um, And then there was another girl who launched her brand. She just, the brand was kind of building when she was in the the accelerator program. She launched the brand. She's now one of the top five fastest growing brands in skincare section. She just closed her series A raise at a $95 million valuation. She's 26 years old. Wow. Wow. So we know that not only was this the right thing to do, it is quickly proving to be a phenomenal business opportunity for people who do this properly. That's huge. Aurora, what makes you most optimistic right now about the future? 
Mm. Well, I, um, this morning was a judge in the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund, the same program that I did when I first launched my brand. And every single one of the 10 designers that came in talked about their community and empowering their community and speaking to their community and trying to advocate for change. And in the same way that we both acknowledged earlier that altruism isn't necessarily baked into corporate structures, I think with this very young wave of entrepreneurs, some of that is getting actually baked into their businesses, Mm. right? And to me, like, that is a really beautiful, beautiful thing. Before, like, the pledge happened before anything. I Time Magazine made me an optimist of the year in, like, 2019 or something like that. And that will stay with me for forever because I just – remain like so hopeful about about the future and about listen change happens like in baby steps yeah yeah until you look up and it's has happened all at once yeah absolutely that was aurora james entrepreneur author and founder of the 15 percent pledge we'll link to her work in our show notes And now it's time for our book segment, which means that we are bringing back our good friend, Scott Ulster. Scott, as many of you know, is an avid reader and has been working with books here at LinkedIn on our editorial team for years. And before that, with me at Fortune for years. He's also an incredible editor. Scott. Thanks, Jesse. So good to have you in the studio. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me again. Well, so tell me, what have you been reading? What's on the top of your pile these days? Yeah, top of the pile for me these days is a book called Random Acts of Medicine. And it's by two physicians, one of whom is actually a PhD in economics as well. And they're both practicing physicians. They work at Mass General Hospital. And what they do is is something quite interesting in the world of healthcare. They do what are called natural experiments. But in natural experiments, what you're doing is taking a look at the natural world, the world as it exists, and trying to see if you can identify patterns and then ask questions off of those patterns. And there's just so much about the world of healthcare, how we are treated and how physicians uh, uh, do their job and also how patients seek care that expose the hidden factors and biases uh, that we're just not aware of. And their job is to expose those aspects. Interesting. So for our community, what do you think is the most relevant takeaway here? Yeah, some of this would for sure apply to people who are who are parents, right? So one of the findings that they discuss in the book has to do with how children are treated uh, and diagnosed for things like ADHD. Now, you know, when you when you go to class, when you're in kindergarten or first grade, how you're placed in class has everything to do with the month that you're born. Mm-hmm. The thing is, though, there's a cutoff, as there has to be. So folks who are born, children who are born in August are really a year younger than children who are born at the cutoff date, typically September. Now, the thing is, kids age differently, they mature differently. And so what happens is doctors end up diagnosing children with ADHD at much higher rates when they are at those cutoff dates, those pre-cutoff dates. So that example that you gave, which, by the way, really resonates for me because I have a kid starting kindergarten who will be the youngest kid in his class in the fall. Hmm. I imagine it probably happens all over the place. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, these are patterns that they're spotting that take place 
on a very wide basis, and their studies are intentionally broad. And what they're looking to do is identify these patterns that physicians are unwittingly, for the most part, almost entirely unwittingly, uh, taking part in. And the idea is that when you expose these hidden biases, these hidden factors that affect care, you have a better chance of intervening and asking, is this the right way to go? Is this the right diagnosis? Is there more to ask? So it's essentially infusing the scientific process with a little bit less rigidity and a little bit more curiosity as we go. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And like I've said, you know, there's just so much about the way we are treated, the way we seek care that we often just don't think much about. Yeah. That can truly affect you know, our lives. Leave us with one tiny detail from this book that's going to stick with you. During cardiology conferences, patient mortality, patient deaths actually decline when it comes to things for like heart conditions and things like that, which is entirely surprising because wouldn't you want an experienced cardiologist to be working on you when you have something like a heart attack? Wait, let me make sure I understand this. So when all the cardiologists are off in Boca Raton having at our conference, <laughs> that's when things actually get better? Overall, this is insane, but overall mortality declines for a specific subset of heart-related conditions when cardiologists are off having a good time. Why? There could be many different reasons why, but one of the reasons, and this is one key thing that I think all of us can take away, one of the key findings is, or, or key suggestions is that cardiologists may be inclined to operate or to be a, perhaps a little more aggressive doing procedures when perhaps it may pay to take a beat. It's so, so hard to not do something especially yeah. when you know you can. And I feel like this applies to professionals of all kinds. It's this urge to do something. There's a, a bias towards acting. Yeah. If you have a tool, use it. Exactly. Because God forbid, on the other side of a tragedy, look back and think, I could have used that tool. Um, but I love the idea that these authors ask us to rethink that and many other things. And Scott, I really appreciate your reading. We look forward to having you back. Oh, thanks, Jesse. This week on Hello Monday Office Hours, let's talk about using our influence, whatever it may be, to make positive changes in our communities. Join us for Office Hours 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. We'll go live from the LinkedIn news page. If you're not sure where to find us, well, send us an email at hellomonday at linkedin.com. We'll send you the link. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by a soft gadrone. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer and Scott Ulster help us make our world better. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening.